Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, residents in the capital city will soon get trash pickup service again. The mayor and city council agree on terms for an emergency contract. Then a look at the gaps in storm system warnings in the rural Gulf states. Plus, this week's History is Lunch looks at the 60th anniversary of the civil rights movement led by black youth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. So all in favor of item number one, all opposed, okay? The item passes four to two. Trash pickup is resuming in Jackson today. The city council approved a 12-month emergency contract with Richard's Disposal. The company had to halt its services after their original emergency contract expired last month. For more than two weeks, the mayor and the city council couldn't agree on new terms and residents were left without trash collection services. Following the 4-2 vote approving the new contract, Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba told reporters resuming service is the most important thing. It says the trash is going to get picked up. That's the only thing it says to me. Uh, and, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I won't get into the semantics of what the count was. Uh, what the residents want to know is that their trash is going to be picked up, and we're grateful today that we can ensure them that that process begins tomorrow. I believe that those details can be worked out, uh, and, and I believe that's sufficient time. I won't speculate on, on any of those matters, uh, but right now we can say that we work to make sure that residents' trash is going to be picked up, uh, and so we're glad for that. Jackson resident Marilyn Triplett witnessed the vote at City Hall. She was in the chamber holding a sign that read, Thank you. She tells our Lacey Alexander, This agreement is needed, but overdue. Yes, I'm glad that this ordeal is not over, but at least delayed for a good while. And I just think that this should have been done a long time ago before the citizen of Jackson endured some of the problems that we are enduring with no garbage pickup for the last 15, 16 days. Why do you think there were still two no votes on this? I don't know why, but I know my city councilman voted no a couple of times. And I, I, I can't get a, give an explanation for him. I wrote him a couple of letters, but I never even got an acknowledgement that he got my letters. So I have no idea why they would do that. So last question, what does this mean for the people of Jackson? 
it means that at least we can um, move forward. The emergency contract will expire on March 31st of 2024. The month of April will be prorated, but city officials tell or still say there's a long-term problem. When asked about the request for proposals or RFPs in order to secure an extended contract, Lumumba deflected. I won't speak to anything else that gets into legal matters as well. Uh, I'm just going to speak to your trash is going to be picked up tomorrow. I need you to adhere to the guidelines uh, that we've asked that you do. This is to ensure everybody has a lot of trash, right? So we want to make certain that everybody has an opportunity uh, for them to be able to relieve themselves of all of this, uh, this piles, these piles of trash that have accumulated at your home. Uh, so we ask that once again, you limit it to two cans or six bags of household garbage. Uh, for each of your homes over the next few pickups. Um, and so this is to be fair to everyone. Uh, this is to be fair to our workers uh, that we know uh, spend a lot of time at that. Do you right. know how many employees would Richards will go back to work? I would have to get that back to you. I, I know that they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 employees that I, I uh, was told. Um, and so I'm assuming that the number is, is uh, approximately around that, that amount. Uh, but I, I can't tell you definitively. Without trash pickup for the first half of April, residents have made complaints about paying the city for a service they never received. The mayor said they are looking into potential solutions to settle those grievances. We are still researching that. Uh, we do believe that um, we, we think that it's a reasonable request. Uh, the reason that we say we're researching it is because when you pay your sanitation rate, that does not only go to your curbside pickup. Uh, it goes to maintaining our rubbish, rubbish landfill. It goes to uh, roll-off dumpster days that the city does. It goes to our cleanup crews that, that uh, pick up trash and debris on the side of the street. So uh, we're not used to segregating that out, uh, doing the accounting of what portion exactly goes towards uh, just the curbside collection. And so our accounting department, they have to be able to determine that. And what it will look like is, is not a payment to residents, but potentially a credit to residents. And so we're trying to prorate that credit so that it can be applied appropriately. The city says Richards resumes curbside trash pickup this morning. Coming up, a look at the gaps in storm system warnings in the rural Gulf states. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB. Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. After a string of deadly tornadoes cut through Mississippi, residents in some rural towns said they didn't get enough advance warning. From the Gulf States newsroom, Danny McArthur explores how emergency warning systems are supposed to work and the gaps that exist in our region. 
Rolling Fork, Mississippi is grappling with how to rebuild after a severe storm. Residents like Jocelyn Matthews worry about the physical and mental impacts. Her daughter worries about the tornadoes coming back. Now every day she checks the weather. If the storm, if the clouds is too cloudy, my hope is not going to be another tornado. And I always tell her, you know what, God got us. At a recent town hall, she shared how some of her kids are still traumatized. That's partly because the storm was a surprise. That night in late March, Matthews had just made it home from Family Dollar. At first, it was calm. And then all of a sudden it got quiet. Like, everything stopped. We go in the house and we hear like a train sound. The tornado touched down sometime after 8 p.m. And in the minutes before and during the storm, Matthews says she had no cell service. So she didn't get the text messages and calls from friends and family warning her. And she couldn't hear the outdoor siren her town normally turns on during severe weather. But because everything happened so fast, she thinks the sirens wouldn't have been much help. Because they normally don't, they don't even put it out there where it's 30 minutes before. It's probably like when the weather is, then hit the town. There's some existing warning systems for storms. Local TV stations broadcast watches and warnings. The National Weather Service reaches people a few different ways. Mobile alerts, its weather radio, and online updates. Some communities have outdoor sirens. In Birmingham, Alabama, they test these on the first Wednesday of every month. But there's no one single method that will reach everyone. These storm notification issues are common in marginalized communities. Rolling Fork is a small, majority black town in the Mississippi Delta. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an impoverished state. So there are many priorities, I'm sure. Chauncea Willis is the co-founder of the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management. But life safety should always be the first priority. Before that, she spent decades as an emergency manager. Willis says there's not usually a lot of time to warn people when tornadoes are headed their way. For one, they tend to come at night, like it did in Rolling Fork. And sometimes there's only about 13 minutes of warning before... Um, they're already uh, there having impact. That means a lot of emergency planning has to happen before a storm occurs. The problem is that rural and lower income areas often don't have the resources and access they need to be prepared for severe disasters. Willis says that stems from a lack of government funding. And if you are um, unfortunately not prioritized um, by the local government, then it doesn't really matter what disaster it is there will still be disproportionate impact. There's not one fix to these problems, but Willis says there are some key things that have to happen. The first is to identify the most vulnerable communities and make a plan for them. The second is to develop a relationship with them so that it's clear what each town's challenges and opportunities are. And finally, Willis says residents in these vulnerable communities need year-round training and planning for how to respond to natural disasters. It would also help to expand broadband access so people can get weather alerts. As an emergency manager, Willis says she gave weather radios to mobile home residents. That way, they get those alerts for those late-night storms. We have to make sure that they are safe and that any any future storms that are coming, they have to be able to withstand those. Ultimately, Willis says each community needs to have its own tornado warning system, tailored to its residents' specific needs. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. 
Coming up, this week's History is Lunch looks at the 60th anniversary of the civil rights movement led by black youth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. The MPB Public Media app just got an update. It's now easier than ever to interact with your favorite MPB local shows and experts. With the brand new Talk To Us feature, you can engage with your favorite MPB local shows anytime, day or night, directly through the app. Simply select Talk To Us from the MPB Public Media app's menu. There, you can leave a question, share show ideas, or simply just say hello. With the new Talk To Us feature, you have access to your favorite MPB local shows and experts anytime you want to talk. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. When Daphna Chamberlain began research for her dissertation, she wanted to understand why more hadn't been written about the role children played in the civil rights movement. She focused primarily on the 1963 sit-ins and marches in Jackson, but that work also revealed stories dating back to the 1940s and 1950s of high school students fighting for integration. On the 60th anniversary of the Jackson protest, Chamberlain, an associate professor of history at Tougaloo College, is presenting the story of the Jackson Children's Crusade at History is Lunch. That's today at the two Mississippi museums. She speaks with our Michael Guidry about the power of the youth movement and how parks, pools, and the state fairgrounds became their battleground. These were spaces that young people took advantage of on a daily basis. And, of course, these are the very same spaces that even today's youth, uh, Gen Z, um, take for granted. That's the fact that these were segregated spaces that were uh, separated along racial lines. And, of course, because these were spaces that young people enjoyed, these were the contested battlegrounds. And these were the places in which they were baptized in the movement where they, they came to understand the uh, critical nature of organizing, but also protesting and demonstrating and, and wanting to do away with Jim Crow in these areas like the zoo and also like the the, the state fair. But these were, were fun spaces for young people. But of course, when you throw in the fact that these were segregated spaces that may not have been equitable for um, black youths at the time, th- this was a concern. And young people articulated the concerns that impacted them, and they wanted to see change. And that's exactly what happened when they got together, strategized, organized, and got on the picket line to bring about substantive change. And then this comes to a head, at least in in this research and presentation, um, with the spring 1963 events uh, in Jackson, uh, a response um, to the unwillingness of the mayor and city officials to, to negotiate any changes regarding integrated spaces. It was sustained, it lasted a while, and it resulted in the state fairgrounds where the state fair has been held for seemingly ever and altered the use of the state fairgrounds, if I'm not under, if I'm not mistaken. 
Exactly. And and one of the things when I present to groups, especially when talking to uh, youths all across the state who enjoy October as fair season, I have to th- get them to think about, of course, this, this was, a um, again, a contested battleground. This was a segregated space. Um, in which, of course, one week was designated for white fair goers and another week was designated, or a few days was designated for um, quote unquote colored fair goers. But um, in thinking about from year to year, beginning in October of 1960, young people were on the front lines of challenging this particular space and trying to get the African-American community, not just in the city of Jackson, but those who were also coming into the city to enjoy the fair, to understand that this was uh, an economic driver for the state and that if they could do something to desegregate the the state fair, that that would be a win for for the community and, of course, um, a win against Jim Crow. But here's the turn of events when... um, You have in 1963, uh, there are numbers of students who are being arrested um, after the demonstrations of downtown businesses, but also after the walkout that happened in late May and early June of 1963. And because jails were being filled, uh, there were various modes of transportation used to take students to these areas of detention. But as those jails were filling up the state fairgrounds, the livestock tends to be exact were converted to a makeshift detention center. And um, and, and that's the irony of, in all of this, is that this contested space for all of those years in the early 60s ended up becoming a uh, a place of detention for young people who were fighting for freedom. And as you present your your research at History is Launch at the two Mississippi museums, a building that overlooks um, those very grounds. Um, it, you know, it, does that resonate with you with you at all that you're, you're presenting this information at museums that are, are there, situated right across uh, from the, the from the state fairgrounds? Absolutely. Um, I think what's uh, what's amazing about an opportunity in a moment in time such as this, as we think about this being the 60th anniversary of uh, Jackson's children's participation in the civil rights movement. Um, I don't take for granted the fact that that space is right there in that very location. And when we think about it, it's perfectly um, situated in the midst of all of these various historic sites that uh, reflect all of the efforts of um, African Americans and allies of of the black community at that time who were simply seeking um, an equitable system. They were seeking human dignity, equal treatment, um, and, and just to be considered as first-class citizens. So, you know, just the, the location of the two Mississippi museums is, is perfect because it is in the midst of a, the very historical area of the city, and it also is a reflection of all of the history that this state holds. And I'd like to bring this part, a circle on this part, uh, the the role of youth, this is all about the role of youth uh, and their participation in these movements to enact and influence change. Are there any parallels to draw um, with you know, what happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with different, you know, ground swellings of, of young participants and what we see today with members of, of Gen Z and uh, especially the, you know, the, the conversation and and debate and protest around gun violence. Um, 
Are there parallels to be drawn there? I think that one of the greatest parallels that we see, um, and just to give an example, the young people of the 1950s in particular, and even going into their activism of the 1960s, um, the one event that served as an impetus or the, the momentum for their their activism actually could have been um, an event that paralyzed them and prohibited them from moving forward with them being involved in any um, movement that was greater than themselves, and that was the murder, the 1955 murder of Emmett Lewis Till, 14-year-old uh, young a boy from Chicago, Illinois. And when we look at that particular moment in history as being a catalyst for so much that happened post-1955 and the bravery that young people demonstrated in um, in the midst of, of racial violence, of course, a lot of tension, and even some of the backlash their parents could have received from their activism in the movement, their children's activism in the movement. I think that we can draw some parallels to what we're seeing here even in 2023 and even just in over the past decade or so with young people being actively involved. And, of course, the the methods in which they are finding out about uh, current events and what's going on in local communities that are becoming national news and international news uh, by way of social media. Um, I, I think that, you know, that all of the things that are happening, and you mentioned gun violence, all of the things that are happening are really, um, are really serving as a groundswell for these young people to find meaningful ways to get involved in a, a social movement that can transform the world in which they live and also be something that is really critical to impacting, positively impacting policies that are, are being pushed at local, state, and even at the federal level. So young people have a voice. They've always had a voice, and I think that this opportunity for them not to just mar uh, mobilize themselves but also organize in such a way that it's effective that they can be heard. All right. Well, Daphne Chamberlain, Associate Professor of History and Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Social Justice at Tougaloo College, presenting the 60th anniversary of the Jackson Children's Crusade at History's Lunch, presented by the Department of Archives and History at the two Mississippi Museums. Thank you so much for uh, for taking some time to speak with us, uh, share your research uh, of uh, the power uh, of of the youth movement. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to seeing anyone who will be in attendance. Thank you. Again, that was Associate Professor Daphna Chaplin, and she will be talking about her research today at noon at two Mississippi museums in downtown Jackson. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.